With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money. How it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 209. It's titled... Should you even bother owning international stocks? A few weeks ago, I got an email from Drew, a listener, and he sent me an article from Investment News, and it's titled, John Bogle says investors don't need to own international stocks. Bogle was quoted in the article saying, everyone tells me I'm wrong. In my book, Bogle on investing, I said, for a lot of reasons, you don't need to own international stock. Bogle's reasons are that international stocks are more risky. And those risks include currency risk, economic risk, societal instability risk, according to the article. But Bogle published Bogle on investing in 1993. And since then, until the article was published last year in 2017, the S&P 500 index, it's a measure of U.S. large company stocks, gained 779% cumulative versus 309% for the Europe, Australasia, and Far East index, which we know know as EFA. So it's doubled. U.S. has doubled on a cumulative basis. What developed non-U.S. has done. I've been right, says Jack Bogle. Does that mean I'll be right in the future? I could be wrong. But he then pointed out, according to the article, that the S&P 500, half the company's earnings or half the earnings and revenues come from abroad, from overseas. Now, he didn't point out that because half the earnings and revenue comes from overseas, there's currency risk involved in that. It's not, you don't see it, it's hidden, but those companies' sales are impacted by a, for example, a a strengthening dollar. And so there is currency risk whenever you invest outside your home country, be it directly in owning owning stocks that are domiciled outside your home country, or if you invest in a company whose revenue comes from outside your home country. There's always currency risk. We're going to talk a little bit later about currency risk. I think it's important to question our underlying assumptions. Just don't accept every investment tenant at face value. Bogle is saying it's not worth it to invest overseas. You're not compensated for it, for the additional risk, the currency risk, or 
political risk, societal risk, and you haven't been compensated for it. U.S. stocks have have absolutely trounced non-U.S. Just, I gave you the, the performance since 1993, but even in the last decade, for the 10 years ending May 31st, 2018, and this is data from research affiliates, and I'm going to quote the historical data because in, in a few minutes we'll look at some of their forward-looking assumptions. But the nominal return for U.S. large company stocks for the 10 years ending May 31st, 2018 is 9.1%. Small company stocks did 9.6% annualized. IFA developed non-U.S. markets, only returned 2.6% annualized. So about seven percentage points less than the U.S. market. Emerging markets returned 2% annualized. You didn't get compensated for this additional risk. And that's what Bogo is saying. The investment news pointed out, well, what about valuations? The fact that non-U.S. stocks are cheaper than U.S. stocks. Bogle admits one reason is they could be, he puts it, underpriced. In other words, they're cheap. But, he says, the other could be that they have higher risk. P.E. ratios don't come out of nowhere. In other words, non-U.S. stocks might be cheaper because they're riskier. But if they're riskier, shouldn't you get a compensated for that with a higher return? But we haven't. If you're a U.S.-based investor investing in the non-U.S. market, you have not been compensated for it. Now, we're looking at this from a U.S.-based investor, but what if Drew lives in Canada that makes up only 3% Canada, Canadian stocks make up about 3% of the global stock market. Should he invest outside of Canada? Should he hedge that currency risk? Should he take the currency risk? Bogle goes on and points out that suppose you constructed a portfolio that mirrors the compensation of the global stock market. So it's about 52% U.S., 48% non-U.S. And he points out, if non-U.S. would outperform the U.S. by two percentage points a year, that, he points out, leaves only about a one percentage point difference overall in terms of your overall performance. Because it's roughly 50-50. If one does better by 2%, and you have half the assets, then your overall returns is 1% higher. He said you could find that, that 1%, by investing in cheaper funds. But what if you're already investing in cheaper funds? We're going to talk about one, a Vanguard. Bogle founded Vanguard. They have an emerging markets ETF where you can buy 4700 underlying stocks in that ETF for 
0.14%. Dirt cheap. Should you? Investing in your home market, there is no currency risk. It's familiar. You probably know most of the companies. There's only one reason why I invest outside of the U.S. market. It's because I believe my returns will be higher. That's the only reason I do it. Volga was saying the returns won't be higher, so he doesn't do it. Because they are more risky. Currency risk, it's real. The fact that your home currency can strengthen or weaken, that does impact your returns. So let's go back to the basics. The three drivers of asset class performance. First is the cash flow. What is the income from interest or dividends or rents? In the case of stocks, it's, it's dividends. Two is how is that cash flow growing? What are the expectations? If we're going to form expectations for stocks, we want to look at the current dividend yield and how those dividends are going to grow as translated through or coming through corporate profit growth, which is connected to some extent to how well the economy is growing in a particular country. And the third is what are investors willing to pay for that income stream, those cash flows? And will that change over time? Bogle is saying investors shouldn't pay as much for non-U.S. stocks because of the additional risk. What has happened since 1993? I looked at it. I went back to 1993 and I looked at the valuations. What were investors willing to pay in 1993 versus today as of beginning of June 2018? In 1993, the price-to-earnings ratio, what investors were willing to pay for essentially dollars worth of earnings globally, was 22.5. That's the same they were willing to pay for U.S. stocks, 22.5. That was the P.E. So the world was 22.5 P.E. U.S. was 22.5, which means the world... XUS was 22.5. As of the beginning of June, and this is based on MSCI indices, they show U.S. stocks are selling for a price-to-earnings ratio of 22.4. So they haven't budged. But world XUS has gone from a PE of 22.5 down to 15.9. This is from 1993 through June 1st, 2018. So investors, over that period where the U.S. did double the rate of return for non-U.S. developed markets, much of that underperformance was driven by the fact that investors were willing to pay, they, they weren't willing to pay as much. The stocks are cheaper in non-U.S. markets. Now, Drew was also helpful and pointed out a, a, a blog post by, I think it's a Canadian blog called Macro Man, where they recognized you can't just compare one country versus the next. You have to see maybe 
there 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 there's differences in terms of the sectors so for example the us market is 26% tech stocks technology facebook google apple big technology companies which grow fast and tip, typically sport higher price to earnings ratios the world MSCI world XUS is only six and a half percent tech, and there's been a lot of tech growth since 1993. So the U.S. market sh- potentially should be more expensive simply because it has more technology stocks. So the MSCI US has 26 percent, XUS is six and a half, and you combine them together for the MSCI world, 18 and a half percent tech. So they did an analysis, this Macroman blog, and and did adjusted it. They they did so they were looking at forward-looking earnings, the price to earnings ratio, and adjusted it based on sectors, so that we're essentially sector neutral now. And it shows US stock market is 16.9 PE, price to earnings ratio. So again, we're this is forward-looking, so it's going to be lower than than backward-looking P.E. or using trailing earnings. Global is at 15.4. Europe's at 15.4. And emerging markets are at 15.3, including China, which is at 15.1. And so once we adjust for sectors, the U.S. market is still more expensive, but not by quite as much. The investment firm Research Affiliates has a really cool interactive section of their website. And they essentially use those three building blocks to come up with expectations for stock returns over the next decade. They look at the dividend yield. They come up with an estimate of that dividend growth, that cash flow growth, and the third driver, the change in valuation. What are investors willing to pay? And they calculate it both ways. They just they do it just looking yield and growth and come up with estimated returns. So for U.S. large company stocks over the next decade, 5.4% nominal annualized return. U.S. small company stocks, 5.5%. Developed non-U.S., 6.6%. And emerging markets, 6.4%. So they're saying just based on the income stream and the expected growth of that income stream, ignoring any change in valuations, they're saying non-U.S. will perform better than the U.S. stock market. And then if they factor in valuations where they believe that U.S. stock market's overvalued, so that will get adjusted downward, they're expecting U.S. large company stocks will return 2.6% nominal annualized over the next decade versus 2.9% for small company stocks. And for non-developed U.S., they're they're saying valuations will be roughly the same, so they're a little cheaper or or a little more expensive, so 6.8% annualized. And emerging markets, valuations are going to get more expensive, so they're expecting a return of 8.5% annualized on a nominal basis. So significant difference in terms of expectations. That's research affiliates. GMO, these are real numbers. 
This is their seven-year forecast. U.S. large company stocks, negative 4.7%. U.S. small company, negative 3% real. Annualized over the next seven years. Whereas they're saying international large, international international small will do negative 1% and negative 2% real. So still not positive, so negative, and then emerging markets, 1.5% real return. The return assumptions on money for the rest of us plus are 5% for U.S. stocks, nominal over the, the next decade, ranges from 0 to 7%. Developed non-U.S., expectation 6.1%, range of 34 to 87 and emerging markets, 7.8% nominal, expect a return over the next decade, annualized with a range of 4.8% to 11%. So more in line with what Research Affiliates is saying. But if you don't believe that that's the case, and that U.S. will continue to do better than the rest of the world, then you should not invest overseas, because there is currency risk. Before we look at the impact of currencies on investment returns, let me pause for a moment and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterman is not a bank. In the Plus Member Forums, Drew shared a third article with me 
This is by Todd Wax from Thornburg Investment Management. It's titled Making Sense of the Currency Effect in Foreign Equities Investing. He writes, one key component investors often overlook when investing overseas is currency. When U.S. investors buy foreign stocks, they are essentially making two investments, often without realizing it. The obvious investment in in the stock itself, and secondly, the less obvious investment in the currency in which the foreign stock is denominated. In other words, the local shares that trade on the other country's stock exchange and the local currency in which those shares are denominated. And, and, and that, that's true. Then he showed an inter- interesting study. He went from 1971 through 2016 and found, and here's his quote, point to point over the almost 45-year period Currency return ended up not making a large difference for the U.S. investor. So over the long term, it didn't make a difference. That it it worked out in terms of the overall impact of currencies. It didn't make a difference over the long term. The short to intermediate term it definitely made a difference. In episode 74 and 39, I talked about what drives currency exchange rates. And if you want to dig into that deeper, you can do that there. But Wax writes, many factors affect currency exchange rates, including inflation and interest rate differentials between countries, terms of trade, as well as countries' respective balance of payments, government debt, and fiscal balance, political stability, and economic resources and robustness. And those can change, or the perception of those things can change. And that leads to a period where the dollar is strengthening or weakening against other currencies. And in this paper, he broke down periods where IFA, the, the developed non-U.S. market, outperformed and periods where the S&P 500, U.S. stocks, outperformed. And usually there was a, a big difference. So, for example, from August 31st, 2000, through November 30th, 2007, the developed market outperformed the U.S. market by 60%. So essentially 60%. But 78% of that outperformance was due to currency. But if we look from February 1989 through August 31st, 2000, the S&P 500 outperformed non-U.S. stocks by 493%. And only 5% was due to currency. And so you you could pull up this paper. I'll link to it in the show notes. Or if you remember my free insider's guide, you already got this paper. It's table, table one. Go ahead and sign up for that. Free email each week. You can do that at moneyfortherestofus.com. You'll get these links. As well as, as an essay, I do some additional writing that's not available on the podcast. Only send it via email. So that's at moneyfortherestofus.com. But it's an interesting table because you can see that there's periods where the U.S. dollar is strengthening, the U.S. dollar 
is weakening and it impacts returns. So then that begs the question, should we hedge that? Take that currency out of the equation. There are very inexpensive exchange-traded funds that essentially you can buy a hedged version of the global stock market. So you get all the benefits of global stock returns, non-U.S. returns, but without the currency risk. The only reason that I see to do that, and which is why I'm partially hedged, the model portfolios, for example, is about 30 of the non-U.S. equity exposure, about 38% is hedged. It can reduce some of that volatility, those swings. There's, there's sort of, it's kind of a regret management. I don't want to see that additional volatility. There's an exception, though. And if you're in Canada, Canada is interesting because there, if you're a Canadian investor and you hedge against fluctuations of the Canadian dollar, that actually makes, based on history, makes your performance more risky. Because when there's a global bull market, when, when global stocks are advancing, generally oil and other resource stocks are doing well. And the Canadian dollar is highly correlated to the price of oil. So when everything's going well, the economy's going well, stocks are advancing, that tends to be when the Canadian dollar is strengthening. And in that environment, hedging actually reduces the, the portfolio return for a Canadian investor if they hedge. Conversely, during periods when the global stock market is declining, the economy globally is slowing, the Canadian dollar tends to weaken. And in that case, if the, if the markets are falling, having a non-hedged, non-Canadian exposure, if you're a Canadian investor, actually kind of dampens the loss. It's not as great because of the being unhedged because the Canadian dollar is weakening. It's a little confusing, but that, that's just the way it is. And so perhaps as a Canadian investor overseas, you don't hedge at all just because of that. But for most of us, where we live, hedging a portion of your non-home country stock exposure makes sense just to reduce some of that volatility. Now, research affiliates, GMO, and my own expectations are for Money for the Rest of Us Plus, assumed emerging markets were going to have higher returns than the U.S. market and other developed markets over the next decade. And a big portion of that, emerging markets, about 35% China. And there was a development recently where MSCI is adding some A shares. What are A shares? A shares are essentially stocks that trade on the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges. So they're local companies. Traditionally, most ETFs, when they invested in Chinese companies, they were Chinese companies that were listed in Hong Kong. And there wasn't a, really an ability to effectively invest in these A shares, those that were listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen. 
But now you can. It's easier. And so MSCI is adding 233 A-share companies to the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. And I got a question from a number of, of PLUS members on this regarding just the impact of China. Here's one. With China entering a MSCI Global Index, will that really allow investors to prosper with China's emergence as a global leader? What about, he asked, the fact that Chinese government could interfere or has interfered with the equity market? He asked, can we trust the financial results from emerging market companies in China? Are the profits potentially manipulated? He mentioned that 10 years ago, he worked with a business that was trying to partner with a Chinese business, and they struggled to get information to make a good decision, including even who owned the business. So that, that's a concern in investing in emerging markets. That's a risk that Bogle refers to. There's a, a Financial Times article that talks about this entry of these A shares into the MSCI index. Here's the quote. By objective measurable standards, A shares are among the most highly leveraged, volatile, worst governed, and most heavily diluted cohort of shares in any emerging market. They're risky. So to answer this member's question, has the Chinese government at times interfered in the stock market? Yes. Do companies sometimes fudge their numbers and do things that aren't in the best interest of shareholders? Absolutely. But is there an opportunity here to participate in the second largest economy in the world? There is. Here's Brian Yao. He's chief investment officer of public equities at Singapore's Sovereign Wealth Fund, GIC. He says there are many good businesses listed in the A-share market that are not available for investment in Hong Kong, especially in the consumer, industrial, and healthcare sectors. So I invest in China through an emerging markets ETF, but I recognize that, that there's definitely some risk there but I invest because I believe the returns will be higher over the next, next decade than the U.S. stock market. If you invest in the Vanguard FTSE Emerging Market ETF, VWO, like I do, like it's on the model portfolios of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, there's 4,700 stocks in that. 4,600 make up 55%. So the 100 stocks, the top 100 names make up 45%. The top 10, 18%. But 55% are spread around 4,600 companies, 3,600 of which have less than 0.01% of the overall fund and are mostly A-share stocks listed in China. The fund has 6% turnover. It's a buy-and-hold fund. 0.14% expense ratio. 
like I mentioned. Here's a way if a company blows up and fudges the numbers or just go out of business, steals the money, it's 0.01% potentially, 0.02%. But if one of those companies does extremely well and gets to the point where it becomes another Alibaba, where let's say it's 3% of the index. In other words, you can participate. There's, there's potentially a lot of positive embedded surprises as you diversify among thousands of holdings in this emerging markets ETF and others that are like that. So yeah, there's, there's definitely risk in investing overseas. There's currency risk, there's political risk. People cheat, but there's also opportunity to participate in a part of the world that potentially will do better than the U.S. market. We could have a reversal. U.S. market's done very well over the past decade. That doesn't necessarily mean it will continue to do well. That's what diversification is. You spread your bets among the various opportunities. And if you don't think it's an opportunity, then you continue investing in your home country. And again, this is just, just stocks. This is one asset class. There's lots of other asset classes, both in the public and in the private markets. We want multiple return drivers in our portfolio. But I invest in international stocks. I think you should, too, recognizing there are risks. But I think at the end of the day, we will be compensated for those risks with higher returns. That is episode 209. You get show notes, as I mentioned, at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk profile, not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.